Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This video is brought to you by Devout Decals, makers of reusable Catholic art for your home altar, your bedroom, and your home classroom. Blessed Second Sunday in Advent. I hope your Advent is going well, and that you're making the best use of this time to at least go a little deeper in your faith, to detach ourselves so much from some of the stressors of the world, and to, for those things that we still pay attention to this time of year, perhaps the mess in the church, we take this opportunity to pray fast, to act of penance for those who need them. For such is good for our souls and things that our Lord commands us to do. With that end in mind, we will be continuing our exploration of the meaning of Advent with the shifting away, as we did last week from St. Thomas Aquinas to now to the sermons of St. <laughs> Francis de Sales. I have a classic work in my hands here. It's wonderful, and I'm going to share it with you. I brought St. Francis de Sales for Advent last year, or for rather Lent last year, so now it is only appropriate for Advent. And here we will hear the story of St. John the Baptist, which is rather critical to the story of Advent. Today's Gospel, Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 to 10, is divided into three parts, each of which we shall speak about now. The first treats of how St. John, while imprisoned for the truth, sent two of his disciples to our Lord to learn whether he was the promised Messiah or whether they were to look for another. The second concerns the Savior's response to them, or the act of disobedience he had committed. The Lord questioned him in order to make him acknowledge his faith so that he might pardon him. And instead of confessing it, that miserable man threw the blame on his wife. Because he did not confess his sin, he with all his posterity was chastised by God. Some of the fathers hold that if, when God called him, he had confessed his sin, if he had struck his breast and said a fervent peccavi, I have sinned, the Lord would have pardoned him, and would not have chastised him with a scourge with which he punished him with all his descendants. But inasmuch as he did not do so, we remain stained with the sin of our first parents, and are consequently subject to the penalty that he drew upon himself. The second reason why the Divine Majesty poses questions to men is to enlighten them or instruct them on what concerns the mystery of faith, as he did in the case of the two disciples on the way to Emmaus. Appearing to them in the guise of a pilgrim, he asked them what they were talking about, questioning them and enlightening them on the doubt they were experiencing concerning his resurrection. He did not then ask them about their conversation, because he was ignorant of what they were speaking, but rather so that by confessing their ignorance and their doubts, they might be instructed and enlightened. The third reason why questions can be asked is to provoke love. For example, Magdalene, after the death and passion of our Lord, went to anoint and embalm his sacred body. Finding the tomb open, she wept bitterly. She saw two angels there. They asked her, Woman, why are you weeping? Alas, she replied, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Then going a little further, she came upon our Lord in the guise of a gardener. He questioned her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Certainly it is no surprise that the angels were puzzled to see Magdalene weep, still less that they asked her why, for they do not know how to weep. Although it was said mystically that angels weep, Holy Scripture uses the expression only to symbolize their fear at some formidable thing, but they do not weep. 
Knowing that human nature is subject to tears, our dear Savior asks this woman why she is weeping. And why, Lord, do you ask her? Do you not know very well the cause of her sorrow and for what she is searching? Surely he knew all this quite well. It was not to find out that he questioned her, since all things are most clear and manifest to him. But this dear Savior of our souls posed such and similar questions to elicit exclamatory prayers and acts of love and union. Therefore, we do not always ask questions only because of ignorance to know where to find out something, but for different reasons. So the glorious St. John did not send his disciples to our Lord to find out whether or not he was the Messiah, for he had no doubt about that. He had three reasons for sending those disciples to Jesus. First, to make him known to the whole world. He had already spent time preaching his coming, his miracles, and his greatness to his disciples. Now he wanted them to see him whom he had anointed to them. Surely to make God known should be the principal aim of all doctors and preachers. Teachers and those who govern and have charge of souls ought neither to seek nor to obtain anything but this, that he whom they preach and in whose name they teach may be known to everyone. That was this glorious saint's wish. The only sign by which God may be found and known is God himself. At our Savior's birth, the angel sought out the shepherds and announced to them his coming, singing in a wonderfully pleasing melody that these sacred and oft-repeated words, Gloria in excelsis Deo. But to confirm the miracle they had made known to them, they said, Go see him, and then you will believe and hold for certain what we announce to you. For there is no means nor a certain sign for finding God but God himself. This is why our glorious saint, after having long preached to his disciples, the coming of our Lord now sends them to him, not only that they may know him, but still more that they may make him known to others. The second reason he sent them was this. He did not want to draw disciples to himself, but only to his teacher. To those school, he now sends them so that they might be instructed personally by him. For what else was he suggesting in this sending but this? Although I teach and preach to you, it is not to attract you to myself, but rather to Jesus Christ, whose voice I am. That is why I am sending you to him. Learn from him whether he is the promised Messiah, or whether you are to look for another. But this, by this John meant, I am not content to assure you that it is he whom we await. I am sending you that you may be instructed by him personally to that effect. Surely doctors and te preachers, teachers of novices, and those who have charge of souls have done something worthwhile, only to the extent that they have sent their disciples and those in their care to our Lord's school, to be plunged into a sea of knowledge. They were successful only to the degree that they urged and persuaded others to seek out our dear Savior to be instructed by him personally. This is what the great apostle meant in writing to the Corinthians. My little children, whom I have conceived and won for Jesus Christ amidst so many pains, fatigues, and labors, and for whom I suffered so much anguish and torment. I assure you that I did not teach you so as to attract you to myself, but only so as to draw you to my Lord Jesus Christ. If teachers and those who have spiritual care of others try, by beautiful words, to draw to themselves the disciples whom they teach and the souls for whom they care, they are like pagans, heretics, and others who talk and ramble on, and who take great pains in the pulpit to deliver beautiful, subtle, and finely crafted discourses, whose sole purpose is not to lead souls to Jesus Christ, but only to themselves. They attract others to themselves by their words and impressive language. There is no real substance here, only babbling and cackling, yet they captivate many weak spirits in this way. True servants of God, on the contrary, preach and teach those whom they guide, only so as to lead them to God, as much by their words as by their works. This is what St. John does today, and to this all superiors ought to pay careful attention. For they will never achieve success but by directing and sending their disciples to our Lord to learn from him what he is and to study under him so as to know and to do what is necessary for his love and service. 
The third reason St. John sent his disciples to our Lord was to detach them from himself. He feared they would be led into the great error of esteeming him more than the Savior. They were already complaining to St. John in this manner. Teacher, you and we, your disciples, along with the Pharisees, fast. We are poorly clothed and do great penance. But this man, this great prophet who performs so many miracles among us, does not do so. In hearing this and in seeing that the love and esteem which his disciples felt for him was the beginning to produce in them a feeling of contempt for Jesus Christ, St. John sent them to this divine majesty to be instructed and informed of the truth. It was not therefore because St. John doubted in the least that our Lord was the Messiah that he sent his disciples to question him. He sent them for their own benefit and advantage to make him known to the whole world, not to draw them to himself, but to detach them from him, to let them see the miracles that Jesus Christ performed, so they might come to him in a manner worthy of him. He deals with them as befits their status as still children. He assuredly believed that Jesus is the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And certainly he could, by his own words, have brought them to understand this truth, but he chose to direct them to our Lord for this instruction. He could have sent them to him to adore and confess him, but accommodating himself to their weakness and infirmity, he sent them only to ask him who he is and whether he is he who is to come, or whether they should look for another. Surely those who direct souls must make themselves all things to all men, as the apostle says, to save all. Let them be gentle with some and severe with others, children with children, strong with the strong, weak with the weak. In short, they need great discretion so as to accommodate themselves to each one's need. St. Paul himself practiced this marvelously, for he made himself as a child with children, and for this reason he often addressed Christians as, My little children. Writing to the Thessalonians, he said, My little children, I became as a little one in the midst of you, so that I may save you all. I walked with little steps and not with the step of a great apostle. For you would hardly have been able to follow such steps, being little children. I adapted myself to your weakness, and I walked slowly with you as a little child. Furthermore, I have been in your midst as a nursing mother. I gave you milk to drink and nursed you with food suited to your littleness. St. John Chrysostom, Bishop of Constantinople, outstanding in all he wrote, but particularly on the subject of, the, of this apostle, said in the beginning of a sermon on the epistle to the Hebrews, I do not know if I can recall it exactly, here is an amazing thing. When this great apostle was among his Corinthians, he was like a nursing mother among her children. He nursed them with simple food, which was sweet and suited to little children. On the contrary, when he wrote to the Hebrews, it was with a doctrine so profound and a style so elevated that it is without parallel. If we want to understand how St. Paul was in the midst of the Corinthians, look at a mother who has five or six children around her. Notice this woman's skill, how she can give to each one what is appropriate and can treat each one according to his understanding. To the one who is only one, two, or three years old, she gives milk. She uses baby talk with him and plays with him. She does not expect him to say father and mother, but only papa and mama. Being so very young, he cannot yet pronounce the words father and mother. Those that are four or five years old, she teaches to talk better and to eat more solid food. Those a little older, she instructs in courtesy and modesty. Now, writes this holy father, when the great apostle said, I am among you as a nursing mother. What does he mean but that he acts toward his disciples as a nursing mother does towards her children? It is certainly necessary for those who guide souls to have great zeal to learn all that is required to guide them according to their capacity and their attraction. They must use great discernment so as to give them the food of God's word as the fitting and appropriate time so that it may be well received. And again, great discernment to give each one what he needs and in the way best suited to him. Let no one say, you do not speak to me for my perfection as much as you do to this other person. I reply, 
I do not think you have enough teeth to handle the practices that are recommended to others. You could not masticate them. Your answer, I think I do have enough teeth. Surely you have even fewer than you think, since you believe you have more. Ah, then let yourself be governed by others. And this is my first point. The second part of our gospel is the response our Lord made to John's disciples. Reflecting on this response, some doctors have been astonished. Relate to John what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk. Lepers are cured, the deaf hear. Dead men are resurrected and the poor have the gospel preached to them. That the poor have the gospel preached to them is considered a miracle here. These doctors note that the Savior did not work many miracles in the presence of John's disciples, but that the apostles told them of those he had worked. Most certainly, the apostles delighted in relating the wonderful works of their good master to these two disciples. But our Lord also performed many miracles in their presence, which is why he answered them, Relate to John what you hear and see. Some of our early fathers, namely St. Hilary and St. Chrysostom, dwell upon this answer which our Lord gave to those who asked him who he was. You ask me whether I am the great prophet, the promised Messiah, he who thunders in the heavens, and who is to come to crush the head of the enemy. I answer you, relate what you have heard and seen. A wonderful humility of our dear Savior who comes to confound our pride and destroy our false sense of superiority. They ask him, who are you? And his only answer is, relate what you have heard and seen. He answers thus to teach us that it is our works and not our words that give testimony to what we are, who we are, and so full of pride. If anyone were to ask a gentleman today, who are you, he would consider such a question a challenge to his honor. Who are you? Must I show you my lineage and ancestry? Must I produce my pedigree for you? Must I demonstrate whether my ancestors are descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Such silliness is absolute nonsense. Surely there is no need whatever for displaying all these questions to prove that you are a gentleman. But when asked a question, who are you, you must reply, relate what you see, a man gentle, cordial, benevolent, the protector of widows, the father of orphans and minors, charitable and benign towards his subjects. If you have seen and heard such things, say assuredly that you have seen a real gentleman. If you address yourself to a bishop, who are you, he should be able to render his testimony of himself. Relate that you see a man who fulfills his charge well and devoutly. Then you may be assured that he is truly a bishop. If a religious is asked, who are you, and if she is seen to be exact and punctual in the observance of her rules, she can answer that she is truly a religious. In short, it is our works, whether good or bad, that form us, and it is by them that we ought to be recognized. When asked, who are you, do not be content to answer like little children in catechism class. I am a Christian. Rather, live in such a manner that one will recognize clearly in you a person who loves God with his whole heart, one who keeps the commandments, frequents the sacraments, and does all things worthy of a true Christian. I do not mean that when we are asked we who we are, we must not say that we are Christians. Oh, certainly not. It is the most beautiful title we can give ourselves. I have always had a special devotion to that great Saint Blondina, who was ended at Leon and whose life was written by Eusebius. Amidst all the excruciating torments of her martyrdom, she kept repeating gently, I am a Christian, making use of this word as a sacred balm to heal all her wounds. All I mean is that it is not enough to be called a Christian if we do not perform the works of a Christian. After all, what are we? A little dust and ashes. Let us then candidly admit that we are nothing, that we can do nothing, that we know nothing. What nonsense that, being what we are, we are nevertheless wished to make a show and to walk on tiptoe in order to be seen by everyone. But what will they actually see in seeing us? A little dust and a body all too soon corrupted by death. And that was the sermon of St. Francis de Sales for the second Sunday of Advent. Our Lord came to make those 
who are blind in matters of faith to see. That is every one of us. We are all sinners. In fact, we are all confounded by the various things that our Lord says in that passage of Scripture to the disciples of John, that, and that our Lord heals us of all of those things. They are just more than meets the eye, as often is the case with the words of our Lord. I'm curious what you thought of that, though. So let me know in the comments what your what your thinking is about that message of St. Francis de Sales. And hit like and subscribe. If you haven't, it does help. So to share this on social media, that helps too. And as always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.